in the beginning was violence. I see this crowd of people standing there and everybody's hollering. There's a bunch of noise, you know. You're listening to a man who went by the nickname Casper. So I walk up there with my girlfriend and we see this guy. This is the story of how, after being locked up for homicide, he got drawn into the white supremacy movement. And he's beating on this girl. She's down on her knees. There's a puddle of blood under her face and he's just teeing off back and forth, left and right. It's about how, together with a handful of other men, he founded a white supremacist skinhead gang in one of the toughest prisons in America. So I run up and I shoved him. I tell him, hey, that's enough, dude. Like, that's, it's over. Like, she's had enough. But most importantly, it's about how and why he ultimately left the white supremacy movement, becoming, in their eyes, a race traitor, and how he started helping others leave as well. And he pulls out a, a lock blade buck knife. Tells me, you need to mind your own business or you're going to get hurt. What the man with the knife couldn't have known was that Casper was a semi-pro fighter. Between outings on long-line fishing boats, he spent every spare minute training, taking little barn burner fights whenever he could, in which he'd win anywhere from 100 to $2,000. And as it happened, he had just won the biggest fight of his fledgling career in Atlantic City. An agent had approached him afterward and expressed interest in representing him. For the first time in years, things were looking up for Casper, and he had come here, to the boardwalk in Cape May County, New Jersey, with his girlfriend and their one-year-old daughter, to celebrate. So I tell him, um, if you come at me with that knife, I'm going to kill you. And probably shouldn't have said that. He came at me with the knife, and he was like right at my face with it. And I just kind of dipped my head back and I grabbed his wrist backwards and swung my arm up and collapsed his elbow and pushed his forearm. So his arm pretty much went like that. Casper held up his hands to demonstrate the move he was describing. It was unintuitive to me. And even after going back and watching the recording a few times, I had to try it out in slow motion on my wife to understand how it worked. It became clear to me that if a person is holding a knife when their arm collapses in this way, the knife is likely to end up against their neck. In a later interview, Casper told me he didn't know what he intended to happen when he executed the move that night on the boardwalk. It just all happened so fast, and he followed his training without thinking. And I just followed him down to the ground. You know, when I did it, I kicked his feet out. We hit the ground, and I jumped right back up in a stance and realized he didn't have the knife anymore. He's, he's grabbing his throat now and his eyes are just huge. And I whip my t-shirt off and I start trying to pack it around the knife and I'm telling him, don't you die, don't you fucking die. Casper told me he'd heard stories about how you can see the life leaving someone's eyes when they die. He says it's true, you can. The moment I seen his eyes gloss over and I knew, I knew he was gone, I got up and I ran. Um, it took him three days to catch me. I gave him a good run. <laughs> that was, uh, it was August 24th, 1991. He got into even more trouble during those three days when he was on the run. He took an old knife from someone's garage in Salem County and he used it to try to steal someone's car. That was when he got caught. 
they picked me up. Um, Cape May County Sheriff's Department came, got me a couple days later, took me back to Cape May and told me I was being charged with uh, first degree involuntary homicide. It took about 10 months for the case to go to trial. Casper knew he would have to serve time for the attempted carjacking, and he eventually accepted a plea deal on that count. But he was sure he'd get off on the homicide charge. Even the victim's girlfriend testified that Casper had killed him in self-defense. But self-defense laws in New Jersey were tricky at the time. According to the prosecutor, I should have been able to disarm him without harming him. Me using his weapon against him and using martial arts techniques was considered excessive force. The jury deliberated for just under three hours before reaching a verdict. His attorney told him that wasn't a good sign. He braced himself. So, um, jury found me guilty and, uh, was it about three weeks later, two and a half, three weeks later, uh, Judge Visali, the president judge of Cape May County, sentenced me to 30 years with a 15-year minimum. They sent me to Trenton State Prison when I was 20 years old. <laughs> a lot of older people used to tell me, until you know what death smells like, you know, you haven't been through anything that horrific. The day I walked through the doors of Trenton State Prison, I knew what death smelled like. That's a scary place. And that's when all the real madness started. This is Hate No More, the story of one man's journey into and out of violent white supremacy. I'm Henry Rambo. Casper had initially been reluctant to go public with his story. He'd already received death threats from people within the white supremacist movement, or what they simply call the movement, just for leaving it. And he thought the rest of the world would hate him for what he had once been. But, he told me, if my story can help even just one person avoid falling for white supremacist propaganda, then it will be worthwhile. Now, a word of warning. This story contains explicit language and graphic descriptions of violence. When you hear about all the things Casper did, you might think he was a monster. And you would be right. Casper himself would be the first to tell you that he was a monster. When he looks back on the way he spent so many years of his life, he feels profound regret and even self-hatred. Haunting memories of the things he's done have often driven him to despair, and on multiple occasions he has tried to take his own life. But more on that later. For now, I want to take you through the process that turned Casper into a white supremacist. In my interviews with him, I've noticed four things that paved the way for him to enter the movement. The first was anger. So yeah, I was mad. I was beyond mad. Anger at the world. Anger at everything and everyone. Anger that felt justified because the world had unfairly rejected him, denying him a place in it. I was fighting and making money and I was getting ready to become a pro fighter. I had the world, and they took it from me for defending myself. Casper had another source of anger as well. It had to do with God. At age 15, he'd gotten involved in a Christian group called Joyful Noise, 
It had such a profound effect on him that he decided to dedicate his life to Jesus. Before he was even done with high school, he had enrolled in a correspondence program at Amherst Theological Seminary. He wanted to use his natural talent for fighting to glorify God. I was going to be the toughest preacher in America. That was going to be my thing. I was going to promote God through fighting. Only, seminary didn't have the effect on his faith that he expected. While going to Amherst and reading all these different religious texts and everything um, is when I actually, for the first time, studied the Bible and seen all the different comparisons and contradictions and everything else and was like, well, this sucks. I was uh, I was on my way to being a minister, and I was going to promote the Christian religion and spread peace and love, and well, this is bullshit. And I lost my faith. Um, that was uh, that was hard. People don't realize that when you lose your faith like that, it's hard. You know you kind of lose your identity. Even though he stopped believing, he stuck with the program. He wanted to finish what he started. And yeah, I, I did graduate. I am an ordained minister. He had really had his heart set on promoting God through fighting. But now that he'd lost his faith, he had to change his plan. I was trying to reorient and find a new direction now, you know, because I, I had to let that go. I realized there's nothing true here and I can't promote something I know to be a lie. So where do I go from here? And it's like, well, try and make it into fighting business and just fight because that's what you're passionate about now. Casper says that when the homicide on the boardwalk happened, his loss of faith was still weighing heavily on him and he wasn't in a good place emotionally. When I killed him, I was still in that fog of losing my religion. He felt like he'd been lied to, and his anger only continued to build. One thing I always tell people, I don't like being lied to. I'd rather you punch me in the face than lie to me. And I felt like devoting my life to God was based on a lie. And that pissed me off, you know, big time. Then I get to prison for defending myself, and I'm really freaking angry. Casper's anger and sense of having been unfairly rejected by the world left him vulnerable. Vulnerable to any group that would welcome him, especially one that would validate his anger and offer a target for it. It also made him vulnerable to whatever propaganda such a group might feed him. And those are exactly the things the white supremacy movement offered. Together, these things constitute the second factor that led Casper down the path to white supremacy. Exposure to a predatory community that welcomed him in and bombarded him with propaganda. The first people to hit him with propaganda were two guys he'd grown up with. People he'd been very close to who had already been in prison long before Casper arrived. Their names were John and Barron. John and Barron were already involved with white supremacy they had had some dealings with David Lane and the Order. David Lane was one of the most notorious white supremacists at the time. He was perhaps most famous for authoring a statement known in the movement as the 14 words, which are revered and recited like scripture. 
They are. We must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. The 14 words reflect one of the most prominent themes in white supremacist literature, the idea that white people are under attack and must fight for survival. And of course, they they kind of made it sound like the only reason I was in jail is because I was a smart, strong, upstanding white man. And the Jewish government can't have that. The irony in Casper's voice is clear. He no longer hates Jewish people. But as he explains to me, conspiracy theories about the so-called Jewish occupational government are central to white supremacist propaganda. And John and Barron drew a straight line from those conspiracies to Casper's conviction. And we'd start talking about my case and they're like, see, you know, look what they did to you. And I'm like, dude, stop with that. And they're like, do you think you would be here if his dad wasn't a Jewish cop? Apparently his dad had converted to Judaism when he got married. So Johnny and Barron are pushing this whole thing. That's a Jewish family. That's the only reason you're in here. You killed a Jewish cop's kid and you're white. And it got to me. The more Casper listened to Johnny and Baron, the more they fed him. They started having people send stuff in to me, these little pamphlets and newsletters and everything else. Stuff about how uh, if you look at the entertainment industry, all the big wigs are Jews. You know, you look at banking, they're all Jewish people. And I'm like, okay. How does this correlate to the government? And they're like, they control the government. And then I hear people who aren't racist saying the same things about politicians are all bought and paid for by somebody. And I'm like, huh, maybe these guys are on to something, you know? And I start falling into the trap. The third factor in Casper's descent into white supremacy was a lack of knowledge. While bouncing around between alternative schools and a military academy, he did well enough academically to graduate a year early. But he didn't know much science, and that left him vulnerable to pseudoscientific arguments about the biology of race. Some of the propaganda claims that there are different species, which I, I know is completely false now. But back then, I didn't know a whole lot about biology and genetics and things like that, you know, and they're like, yeah, you have white people who are actual humans, and then you have these other species that are the different races. And I believed it. A lot of the materials seemed legitimate because they would cite specific experiments, scientists, and various publications. Reading this science stuff that they say, oh, doctor, whatever, back in 1880, whatever, determined that this race of people inherently has whatever condition because of their brain size. I didn't know any better. I was like, oh, well, okay. They can prove what they're saying. Now I know that's not proof because modern science says, yeah, no, that's not how things work. <laughs> but back then, I couldn't really debate that or debunk it, and I didn't have anybody giving me a counter-narrative to it. I just thought this was accepted science. Looking back, Casper now recognizes the confluence of circumstances that drew him in. 
so it was it was a combination of things you know pseudoscience pseudo history the predicament that i was in you know losing my faith it was like everything happened all at once it left me open um i mean hindsight is 2020 i can look back on it now years later being almost 50 and saying jesus christ that was stupid you know <laughs> but at the time it really wasn't you know it was it was the perfect storm the fourth and final factor that led to casper's conversion was negative interactions with members of other races specifically in his words having my first real experience of being the victim of racism from people like black hebrew israelites nation of islam um five percenters apart from the nation of islam i hadn't heard of these groups and i had to look them up the southern poverty law center says this about the black hebrew israelites since the late 1960s, its ideology splintered to form increasingly anti-Semitic, anti-white, anti-LGBTQ, xenophobic, and misogynistic groups who preach that they, and only they, are the true Israelites of the Bible, and perpetuate the anti-Semitic belief that so-called Jews have stolen their identity and birthright. The Five Percenters, more formally known as the Five Percent Nation of Gods and Earths, are an offshoot of the Nation of Islam. According to Wikipedia, both groups believe that the original inhabitants of the world were black, while the white race are evil devils who were created 6,000 years ago on what is today the Greek island of Patmos by a rogue, big-headed scientist named Yakub. Members of these groups were all over the place in Trenton State Prison, and when Casper crossed paths with them, they frequently hurled racial epithets at him. You know, calling me, you know, blue-eyed devil, you know, worthless cracker, you know, and all these other names and everything and i'm like what the hell does that even mean and then when people would explain it to me i'm like so okay whatever bunch of fucking racist you know in casper's mind this only served to confirm everything his white supremacist friends had been telling him and people are like hey listen man this is how it is in the real world you just don't see it all the time because the jews don't want you to see it even as this ideology became more cemented in Casper's mind, he still had conflicting thoughts. It was weird um, because I have black family members. I have uncles and I don't even know how many cousins I'd have to sit down and write. I'd have to sit down and count them all. Yeah, there's, you know, three of my mom's sisters married black men and had children with them. Um, one of my best friends was a black guy. This was a guy he'd grown up with who went by the nickname No Good and who would later end up in the same prison. And Casper would refuse to stop being friends with him, even if it meant being punished by his fellow white supremacists. I'm not going to quit talking to No Good. Whenever we're in the same yard together or whatever, I'm talking to him. You know, and if anybody's got a problem with it, fight me. And they did. Um, <laughs> I got in quite a few fights for talking to No Good. And I didn't care. I was like, whatever, win, lose, or draw, that's my boy. I'm not going to quit talking to him. And they're like, well, if you're going to associate with the enemy, there's going to be sanctions. Despite these conflicting thoughts, after less than a year, Casper was all in with the white supremacists. Besides Johnny and Barron, there were two other men he became close friends with. A guy his age named Chris, 
who had been involved with the Atlantic City skinheads, and an older man named Bobby, who also had connections in the world of white supremacy. Under their influence, Casper changed quickly. He shaved his head, he grew a goatee, he even spoke differently. And when his ex-girlfriend brought their daughter for a visit, she didn't like what she saw. My daughter's mom brought her up. You know, her and uh, her mom came up with my daughter. And uh, she asked me, you know, what the fuck's with the shaved head and everything else? Like, you look like one of them skinheads. And I was like, because I am. And she's like, what? You know, and I'm like, I am. You know, like, listen, you know, I've learned a lot. And I started spewing back this fucking propaganda to her and she was like i'm gonna tell you right now i don't want to hear that shit you better not ever talk you know any of that around our daughter you know and i'm like listen you can believe what you want but i'm telling you right now how these fucking n-words and puerto ricans and everything else are she was like one of your best friends is black and i'm like listen it's not the same I'm rolling with the skinheads in here. If you don't like it, tough fucking titties, I don't know what to tell you. She responded by listing off the names of Casper's black cousins. What about them? She asked. And I'm like, what about them? You know, and she's like, well, they're black. And I'm like, they're not my family. And she just looked at me and she goes, I cannot believe you just said that about them. Casper pauses at this point in his story and shakes his head as if he can't believe he'd ever said that about them either. He had loved his cousins when he was growing up with them, and there was nothing about them to hate. They are really good people. He had been especially close to one of them, whom we'll call Mary, and even though she was slightly older than him, he'd been fiercely protective of her since he was little. Man, she was... Do not fuck with her. Like, I... I don't give a fuck how big you are. I don't care who you are. If you messed with her when I was little, little five, six years old, I'd chase you around with a fucking hammer. (laughs) And now I'm in prison and I got this fucked up mindset that she's not white. So I'm done with her now. Casper's ex-girlfriend and cousins weren't the only ones he began alienating. He asked other family members not to visit him. He says Trenton State Prison was such an awful place that he just didn't want them to see him there. The visit hall in Trenton, that's scary in and of itself. I mean, you see see guys out there with their fucking gang tattoos, you know, right on their neck and everything else. And you can tell, like, this is not a happy place. (laughs) Um, It doesn't look like on TV where everything's all clean and shiny and everything and people are talking real quietly amongst themselves now listen you got straight up fucking hood rack criminals in there and shit babies are crying moms are changing diapers right there on the fucking table you got you know a couple over here arguing about shit you got another guy over here whose girlfriend came up the same time as his wife so they're fighting you know it's It's a fucking madhouse. But one of his aunts, a woman who was like a mother to him because she had taken him in and treated him as her own child on more than one occasion when one or both of his parents had disappeared for a time, came to see him anyway. And I'm like, why did you come up here? I tried to tell you not to come up here, you know. So I give her a hug and everything. 
we kind of talk a little bit what's going on at home, this, that, and the other thing, how I'm doing in there, you know, do I need anything, whatever. And I'm trying to tell her this isn't the movies. You can't just bring me clothes and shit like that. Like, that's not how this works, you know? So she grabs my hands and she's like, well, let's pray. And I'm like, don't, you know? And I pulled my hands away and she was like, what do you mean? I was like, listen, I'm done with all that. As far as I'm concerned, there is no God and nobody can prove to me there's a God. And she's like, what are you saying? You know, and I'm like, I'm an atheist. You know, you can accept it or not. Casper's aunt broke into tears and he realized that nothing could have hurt her more deeply than what he'd just said. It was a dick move. You know, I look back on it now. Well, even before now, I've looked back on it like, man, you know, you you didn't have to be like that. You didn't have to give her that kind of fucking attitude about it. And I don't know. I honestly don't know why I was that fucking horrible to my aunt because she was always there for me. You know, always, no matter what, she was there for me. I could always count on her. And I just pushed her away so fucking bad by doing that and she still never gave up on me you know um it broke her heart though as casper pushed away the people who truly cared about him he replaced them with a new family johnny baron chris and bobby not just because he now shared their ideology but also for the sake of survival from his very first day in prison Casper had been a target. Everyone in Trenton knew him as the kid who'd thought he was going to be a pro fighter, and they didn't think he looked that impressive. I was still, you know, probably maybe about 180 pounds at the time, you know. So I'm not small, but for prison, I'm kind of small. One of his prison face sheets has him listed as six feet tall and 150 pounds, though Casper says they didn't actually weigh inmates when making these documents they would just take a glance and write down a number. In any case, people were practically lining up to put him in his place, and as a result, he found himself in a lot of fights. But nothing that got him in too much trouble initially. I mean, I had had little simple write-ups um, that really didn't get me put in a hole for anything. Um, got me, like, extra duty or something. Like, hey, you know, you got to mop the floors for four hours without pay. You know, simple shit like that. That was about to change, though. Casper says that after he'd been in Trenton for almost nine months, one member of the Nation of Islam, a man who, oddly enough, went by the nickname Rosie, came to his cell to intimidate him and steal from him. I just got back from canteen or commissary, the store, basically. And uh, I had... Well, two or three bags worth of stuff, you know, all kinds of soups and snacks and things like that. With the paltry amounts of money inmates earned for carrying out various duties, it could take weeks to save up for an order like this. It was a big deal. In prison, your commissary was your treasure. He came to my cell and told me, hey, I'm getting ready to go out here and eat. When I come back, you're going to have half of my canteen order ready for me to pick up or I'm going to take it all. And I'm like, really? And he was like, I ain't playing. You got 15 minutes. And he walked away. 
Rosie must have expected Casper to be scared. But, even if Casper was scared, his fear was nothing compared to his anger. He snapped, and he got ready to fight. And not just to fight, but to kill. What happened after Rosie returned was pivotal in Casper's journey towards starting his own white supremacist gang. And we'll hear more about it next time on Hate No More. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment right now, yes, now, to rate it, review it, and share it. To support us and get immediate ad-free access to all episodes, go to patreon.com slash hate no more or click on the link in the show notes. Hate No More was written and produced by me, Henry Rambo. Sound design was provided by Michael Parkhurst at Nostalgic Innovations. Special thanks to my wife and to Ryan, Allison, George, and, of course, Casper. Finally, there's more than enough outrage and hate in the world already. If you log onto social media at all today, instead of sharing what upsets you, do what you can to make kindness and empathy go viral. We all need to play a higher game. And with that, thank you for listening.